like, uh, I hope you brought your Bible with you again. And if you didn't, there's one in front of you. It's the, it's the version that we're going to be using is the NIV. But if you have your own, follow along. Our reading today is Acts chapter 5. And we're going to read from 11 to 42, so a little longer than we have in the bulletin. I want to say a few words of introduction uh, about the book of Acts. We believe it was written by the same person who wrote the Gospel of Luke, Luke the physician. It's the story of the early church and how it formed after Jesus went and ascended into heaven. It's the story of Peter and James and the early apostles and then later on of the story of Paul and his missionary journeys. Acts is an interesting book for the church. It's an under-read book an underutilized book. We don't know quite what to do with it. It's not like the Gospels, full of parables and teachings of Jesus. And it's not like the epistles, all all the letters from Paul, James, John, uh, and the rest. So it occupies a very unique place. It's full of story. It's the story or the narrative of the early church. What we find, though, when we look at Acts is that it's full and it's rich. And inside the story is God's story and our story meeting here on earth. And it has a lot to say about where the church is going even now. It's not like other parts of the Bible, so it's not prophecy, it's not parable, uh, it's not poetry. It's it's a story. The setting for our particular text today in Acts chapter 5 is the temple, just like it was last week, but after Jesus was uh, raised and ascended. And the temple continues to be a place of conflict. It's where religious people gathered, and it's where the disciples, the apostles, gathered. As I told the children, they gathered there. They were preaching and teaching there, and they were also healing people there. Since this is a story, I'd like you to pay attention as I read to things that make stories what they are, the things that create plot. So places, pay attention to those. Pay attention to people, the characters. Pay attention, listen for emotions as they come out in the story and any textures that you might detect as we, as we read. Also, pay attention to any kind of movement because that's where the plot is going. So look for physical movements, look for spiritual movements, look for the, the story to move, as, and it does. And look for a tiny bit of humor. It's a little hard to catch, and we'll, we'll, I'll clue you into the humor later when we look at it verse by verse. But there's a little bit of humor in this story too. So with that, I'd like to read Acts chapter 5, 11, uh, 12 through 42. It's a longer reading, and um, if you want to read along, great. If you want to close your eyes and let the story come to you, you're welcome to do that too. Acts chapter 5, verse 12. The apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade at the temple. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats, so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by evil spirits, and all of them were healed." Then the high priest and all his associates, who were members of the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. Go, 
Stand in the temple courts, he said, and tell the people the full message of this new life. At daybreak, they entered the temple courts, as they had been told, and began to teach the people. When the high priest and his associates arrived, they called together the Sanhedrin, the full assembly of the elders of Israel, and sent to the jail for the apostles. But on arriving at the jail, the officers did not find them there. So they went back and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. On hearing this report, the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests were puzzled, wondering what would come of this. Then someone came and said, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple courts teaching the people. At that, the captain went with his officers and brought the apostles. They did not use force because they feared that the people would stone them. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than men. Then God, the God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might give repentance and forgiveness of sins to Israel. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a while. Then he addressed them. Men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. Some time ago, Theudas appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, all his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. When I was in seminary in a class on preaching of all subjects, somebody brought up that they had been to a retirement banquet of a pastor who had pastored a church for 30 years. And at that banquet, it was finally time for the retiring pastor to get up and talk. And one of the things that he said was, I'm really glad 
that I got through 30 years and never said the J word. The J word was Jesus. He managed to be a pastor of a church for 30 years and never once uttered the word Jesus from the pulpit. Now, we were all stunned by this. I think I see some stunned faces in the crowd right now. Um, And honestly, I wonder how can you preach for 30 years and not talk about Jesus or even say that name? You can really only talk about, you know, have nice manners, don't kill bugs, um, recycle. I don't know. I'd run out of stuff really quick if I couldn't talk about Jesus from the pulpit. Our professor said something really kind of insightful at that moment. If you can't say something, it means you don't believe it. And it's possible even for a pastor to not even believe in Jesus, but just go through the motions and for 30 years preach about everything but Jesus. In our text today, we have the apostles being ordered by the leaders of the temple to no longer preach the name of Jesus. This is just one part of of a conflict that's going on here at the temple, but it has to do with the name of Jesus and what they're testifying to. What I'd like to do is, as has become our custom hopefully now, is go through our passage Almost verse by verse, we'll we'll go in chunks. I'll highlight a few things, maybe draw out some of the parts that I think we can pay a little more attention to. And then at the end, I want us to ask, what does this mean for us? What does this mean for where we are now? This is an old story. Is it our story? Where do we find ourselves in it? Let's look at verse 12 through 16. This is what I talked with the children a little bit about. Um... The disciples, the apostles, were meeting in a place called Solomon's Colonnade. Sometimes some translations call it Solomon's Porch or Solomon's Portico. It's part of the temple complex, easily within sight of the opening or the entrance of the temple. And there they were, preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus, curing people who had evil spirits. People were both afraid of them, So there was an emotion that maybe early on you detected if you were listening for emotions in this story. People were afraid of them, but in awe of them too. And it turns out that that fear wasn't so much that it kept people from joining them and believing them. And I I think that's interesting and significant. If you've ever seen something really important going on that you thought had a lot of significance and you were awestruck by what was happening, but at the same time you, you wanted to join it, You wanted to get involved in it. You were attracted by it. That's what was going on here, is that great power was accompanying what the apostles were doing. And so much so that uh, people thought, and we don't know if it's true or not, and I thought it was great. Uh, Was it Katya or Annika? It was Annika. She's a good question asker, and that's a great question. Is it true that Peter's shadow cured people? It's a great question. The text doesn't tell us. But people thought it did. And so that's the point. The point is that there's so much power was surrounding the apostles at this time because of the work of the Holy Spirit that people even thought their shadows did something. In verses 17 through 20, 
we find that this activity right at the temple, which is actually run by somebody else, a group of people known as the Sadducees, um, this provoked in them a very strong emotional reaction. We read in verse 17 that instantly the Sadducees were jealous of what was happening. I think they were jealous of all the people flocking to the apostles and being healed by them. Um, jealousy is an emotion. If, I'm, if I remember jealousy, uh, and I remember it, it actually is one of the strongest emotions there is, isn't it? It can get you to do all sorts of crazy things. It's a powerful, powerful emotion. And in this case, this emotion got the leaders of the temple to arrest the apostles, and to throw them in jail. And the purpose of that incarceration was to get them away from all the people that they were preaching to. In, in essence, it was to silence them, to get them out of the public sphere so that they couldn't influence anybody anymore and so that the Sadducees could go back to having the people's attention. The Sadducees actually had this authority. They had the ability to throw people in jail. Uh, we read in the Gospels that Pilate was present when Jesus was crucified and sentenced. But it turns out that Jerusalem was not the seat of the governorship of Judea. It was in a town called Caesarea, which is on the coast. And that's where Pilate was at this time. And the Romans were content to let the leaders of the temple run Jerusalem in their absence. As long as everything was kept orderly, as long as taxes were paid, as long as everything... Uh, was, was not said against Rome overtly, they could run it themselves. And so these leaders of the temple didn't have just spiritual authority over the people, but they had some civil authority too. They had a small police force. They had a temple guard. They had uh, the ability to put people in the public jail, as it says. These apostles are put in chains. They're, they're put in the prison. And... Um, we see then that that very night, I'm having trouble here. I wonder if I'm doing something wrong. There we go. Let's see if it stays. That night, an angel appeared to them and simply let them out of the prison. And this isn't, this isn't the only time in Acts that uh, an angel come and release, comes and releases apostles from jail. It's a kind of a common theme. It happens a lot. Verses 21 through 26 is that little bit of touch of humor that I mentioned. Uh, the, the leaders of the temple that morning, they're going to call the apostles before them to sort of question them some more. And they find that they're not in the jail. But instead, somebody comes and says, well, they're out in the temple preaching. And it's kind of funny that the people who run the temple don't know that somebody's out in the temple preaching about Jesus. They're, they just don't know what's happening even in their own temple. And they wonder what this means. They might be thinking, oh, is it possible that, that even some of the guards have been influenced by these apostles so much and have gone over to their own side? And they're beginning to wonder about their own base. They're beginning to wonder what all this means. We come to verse 27 through 28, and this is kind of a pivotal point in it. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before them to be questioned. And the high priest says, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. 
but you fill Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. It's interesting that the high priest can't bring himself to say the J word. We, he doesn't say, we told you not to preach in the name of Jesus or you want to make us guilty of Jesus' blood, but he says, this man, this name, this distance between us, it, that name is so frightening to us that we can't even say it. It's so offensive to us that we can't even say the name. And if you can't say it, you can't believe it or you don't believe it. Peter defends himself then in verses 29 through 32. And he says, uh, first off, he starts using Jesus' name in verse 30. He says, the God of our Father raised Jesus from the dead. That, By the way, the person you're talking about is Jesus. We'll fill in the blanks for you. Whom you killed by hanging on a tree, and God exalted him and gave us new life through him, repentance and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. We are talking about him. And, and Peter says to them, yes, we understand that you have civil authority over us. You can throw us in jail, and you did. And you can drag us in front of you, and you did. But we've been given a command. The angel told us, and it wasn't just the angel, Jesus also told them, go out in the temple and preach about Jesus. We have to, if we're faced with a choice between obeying God and obeying human authority, we have to obey God because the consequences of disobeying God are f- obviously far greater. And he continues, they say they're going to continue to witness to those things, these things that have happened. What are these things? The things that he was talking about, that Christ died, that Christ was raised, the, the, the disciples were witnesses of these things. That he went up to heaven, that he was exalted, and all of this that it then results in new life because of what Christ has done. Verse 33 through 40, this sort of long section, but it starts off with another emotion that's running this story. It says that when they heard this, they were furious and wanted to put them to death. So we see, we see the leaders of the temple having a whole range of emotions already. Jealousy, which is huge. Fear, which is is also a dangerous emotion sometimes. And now fury, so furious that they want to kill the apostles. Luckily for the apostles, a Pharisee that was on this council spoke up and said, let's just use simple logic. If these guys are doing something that really God isn't behind, it will disappear in time. It'll just peter out like all the rest, like all these others. But, he says... If God is truly behind this, there's nothing you can do to stop it anyways. It's like trying to push back the ocean. It's impossible. And you do not want to be found to, being, to be in opposition to God. You don't want to be in that position. They agreed with Gamaliel. They let them go, but not before exercising more of their civil authority by having the apostles flogged. That's just one little verb there, flogged. But there's a whole lot tied up in there. I don't think that was a particularly pleasant day for the apostles. Being flogged back then was not like a light whipping with a hickory switch. It was, it was, it was pretty awful. And so the, the apostles are let go after a pretty heavy beating. And now we get their emotions. We read in verse 41 
that they experience joy because they were counted worthy to suffer because of the J word, because of the name of Jesus. And they continue to go out into the temple and to proclaim and to go even, it says, house to house and go and tell everybody about Jesus and what he's done. Well, let's look at what this means for us. It's a, it's a fabulous story. It's an interesting story. I hope you kind of connected some of the, the emotions and this idea of, of power and authority because we're going to come back to some of those things. But the center of this story is really Peter's statement where he says, we are witnesses of these things. We've been told to talk about what we've experienced. We've been told to tell people what we've seen. And for the apostles, this was a simple task, but it was a dangerous one, okay? For them, it was as simple as saying, this happened and this happened at this place and at this time. Jesus Christ lived and died, and we saw him raised again, and we saw him go up to heaven. It happened a few months ago, and it means this, new life. Repentance, forgiveness, a whole new way of God dealing with the world. That's all they had to do. Every sermon back then in the early church was a super simple sermon to prepare for. All they had to do was remember what they'd seen and talk about it. That's great. Now, for us, witnessing is different. It's a lot harder to do, but it's a lot safer. We're not going to get flogged for it, all right? Uh, we have to say the, kind of the same thing. This happened and this happened at this time and in this place, but we have to tell people, this is what it means to me, and because of what it means to me, this is what it means to you. And, and it's a little more work because we weren't there. So we have to get into the Scripture and understand what it is that God has done for us. But again, all we have to do is witness to these things, what God has done in Jesus Christ, that He died, that He rose again, that He gave us new life and repentance and forgiveness of sins, and what does it mean? It means I have a new life. It means I have a new start. It means I have freedom from guilt and shame and fear and jealousy and fury and all those things. But it's hard for us. We weren't there. We have to go by what other people said. But that's our task. One person, um, a theologian, said, if I were to sum up Christianity, I would say it like this. Jesus Christ has been, has been raised. All the rest is commentary. Now, we have to fill in the commentary, but it's as simple as that. We're witnessing to one event, the resurrection of Christ. Now, I want to take a look at the story, too. We talked about this passage's story. And I want to think about two things uh, that move the action along in this story. And maybe use your imagination now. The first is this, is the question of power. Power is a, almost a character in this story by itself. And it's something that moves, moves the plot from one place to another. Think about this. In the beginning, we understand that there's the Spirit's power working through the apostles to heal. The response to that exercise of the Spirit's power is this exercise of civil power that the leaders of the temple used to, to imprison them. 
Then God demonstrates angelic power by freeing them and sending them back out to the temple. Then the temple authorities pull them back in again uh, with their power. And then at the end is this discussion about what power or what authority the apostles ultimately have to listen to, God's authority or human authority. And to me, it's almost as if this story is a building, perhaps, that's being held up by five pillars. And each of those is one of the pillars that's sort of holding the whole thing together. Or if it was like a garden path, perhaps, and you're, you're walking through a garden and there's some trees and some ponds and some hedges, that these, these places of power are like gates with hinges on them, and the story is hinging on these places of power. So power may be moving this story along. The other thing that's moving this story along is emotion. I ask you to pay attention to some of those emotions as they came up. We start off with fear of the people and awe at what the disciples or the apostles were doing. It was countered by jealousy on the part of the, of the leaders. Then their fear of being made guilty of the blood of Jesus. And then rage that the apostles insist on continuing to preach and teach. They have the apostles beat, but that results in the apostles experiencing joy. And so there's these emotions that start over here and, and spend a lot of time over here and come back again. If this is our story, one thing that we could ask about us and how we witness is, what is it that moves us in our story? Are we moved by human power or are we moved by God's command and God's power to witness? Who do we think that we answer to? We're surrounded by a culture that does not want us to use the J word. They're phobic of it. They don't like the name of Jesus being spoken. It's not tolerant. It's not polite in good company to talk about Jesus. And so there's great social pressure on us, human authority in a way, to not talk about Jesus. We worry about how we look. Our society looks down on people who are overly religious. They're kind of freaky. They're kind of frightening when they start talking about religious things. It's, it's not good. Are we being moved by human power or by God's power? On the other hand, are we being moved by emotion? Or are we being moved by God's command to witness? Fear, anxiety, guilt, jealousy, all of these things can make us do things. But Christ calls us to witness to him and to his resurrection, not because we're afraid, not because we've been guilted into it. When I was a teenager, I was told to go witness to all my friends. And I was made to feel guilty if I didn't. Anybody can relate to that, right? Uh, you just weren't spiritual enough. You also had to read the Bible every day and pray every day. And if you weren't doing that, they were, clearly you were deficient in your faith. Um, and I think that was well-intentioned. They were hoping that as teenagers we would develop a healthy spiritual life and discipline. But what they didn't realize is that if you didn't do those things, they had this way of making you feel rotten about yourself. Guilt, shame, anger, fear, none of those need to move us towards witness. 
We're moved to witness because God calls us to it, because God has done this thing for us that means something. And it flows out of who we are as witnesses so that we say we are witnesses of these things. And the one emotion that I think does work, though, is what the apostles felt, joy. Joy that we've been asked to do something that's so amazing and earth-shattering as talk about what Christ has done for us. And there might be some suffering, although with the First Amendment, it's kind of hard to make us suffer too much about talking about Jesus. We're not going to get flogged. But we might suffer on some level. And even if we're not suffering, we can rejoice that we've been counted worthy to be asked by God to talk about His Son, Jesus, and use the J word. We proclaim the name of Jesus because we believe in the name of Jesus. We believe in the things that we talk about and we witness to these things, that Jesus Christ lived and that he died and that he was raised again and that brings new life and forgiveness of sins. Amen. I'd like us to respond by uh, standing up, taking our hymnal to 872, which isn't a hymn but is a confessional response. I invite you to stand if you're able. I'd like to read... uh, the normal uh, typeface and ask the congregation and I'll read along with the bold typeface. This is the word of faith we proclaim. If we confess with our lips that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Thanks be to God. Amen.